from KQED. Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Kali. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The Cooler, your weekly dose of pop culture commentary. This week we're talking about the history of Valentine's Day, Brooklyn Beckham and the new celebrity aristocracy, and Idea Dead. Hint, you have lots of it. Ooh. And we're going to talk about why The Bachelor is like a gothic novel? Our guest, Laura Shadler, will be in to explain it all to us. So since Valentine's Day is right around the corner, we should start there. I was looking on the internet to figure out when did this become a thing? Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people say, oh, it's it's just a holiday made by Hallmark and it doesn't exist otherwise. <laughs> people say that about all holidays now. Right. They're like Christmas. It was yeah. invented by Hallmark. I don't yeah. think it was. Well, I fact checked that. Okay. And Hallmark did not invent <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> Let me take you back a couple centuries to ancient Rome. Mm. So in ancient Rome, this is one of many theories. No one really knows where it came from. The most popular theory is that Emperor Claudius II didn't want Roman men to marry because he thought single men made better soldiers because they weren't thinking of back home and they weren't like sad all the time and yeah. they were just focused on killing people. They were <laughs> career men. They didn't have to find the work-life balance. Yes. So there was this law in place where Roman men shouldn't marry during wartime and then this Bishop Valentine was like, you know what? Forget that guy. I'm going to perform secret weddings. Oh, <gasps> scandalous. And for this, he was jailed and killed, <laughs> of course. And while in jail, he apparently wrote a note to the jailer's daughter signing it from your Valentine, because that's Mr. his Valentine. name, <laughs> Bishop Valentine. So maybe it came from there. Uh, okay, I like it though. That's a that's a fun origin story. Mm. Sure. Do you want another one? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what about? It. Is it better? <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a Roman fertility festival called Lupercalia. Okay. Mm. And in this festival, a young man would draw the name of a young woman in a lottery and would then keep the woman as a sexual companion for the year. Oh, I don't okay. like that one so much. And this is romantic. Happy Valentine's Day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a rose. <laughs> I don't like that one. Yeah, that's weird. So in 1537, England's King Henry the Seventh, your homeboy, uh, yes, I studied his fiscal policy to death as a 15-year-old. He officially declared February 14th the holiday of St. Valentine's Day. So that's 1537. That goes okay. pretty way back. Oh, and, and wait. That, so did he kind of say, did did he give a reason for that? I read in two different places, so it's true, mm-hmm. that the Christians wanted to take over these weird fertility festivals like Lupercalia and like make it Christ-like. So they're like, let's put a saint's name on this. Oh. Just, just go ahead and slap a saint name on there. We, yeah. Okay. And appropriation. Exactly. The first <laughs> cultural appropriation They were at ever. it back in the day. <laughs> yes. So that was 1537. Moving forward, there was an old French custom called une loterie d'amour. Oh, what does that mean? It means drawing for love. Okay. Mm-hmm. Single people would go into houses across the street from each other. Already, it's weird. Mm-hmm. And they shout across the street to each other. Then they pair off, but if the male suitor doesn't like the girl after meeting her, he ditches her. And the custom culminates in all the rejected women 
burning pictures of the ungrateful men. God. First of all, do the women have the right to reject the men too? This is The Bachelor, not The Bachelor. I was going to say. <laughs> and France banned this from ever happening again after a while because a bunch of single women around a bonfire, like... We never know what's going to... They sound like witches to me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Might as well just throw them in there. Might as well. That's the only way to deal with a single woman. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. Mm. Exactly. Why take the risk, as the CDC says? Yeah. So bad. <laughs> and in the Middle Ages, this is where the to wear your heart on your sleeve idiom comes from. In the Middle Ages, young men and women drew names from a bowl to see who would be their valentine. They would wear this name pinned onto their sleeves for one week for everyone to see. I, I get really uncomfortable whenever there's like that lottery element. In and there, the know. whole like you are owned. Yeah. yeah. Well, it also sounds like you're just going to be packed off to the labyrinth and eaten by the minotaur, you know, not David Bowie. <laughs> How did that? I'm trying to see the line from all of those traditions to let me buy a card and a box of chocolates for someone. Well, happy you asked. Okay. The son of a chocolatier, last name Cadbury, Mm. was the first person to put chocolates into a heart-shaped box and give it to his loved one in the 1800s. Branding smarts. Also with chocolate, physicians of the 1800s commonly advised their patients to eat chocolate to calm their pining for lost love. Okay, so your beloved gives you a box of chocolates because they're planning to leave you? Is so that... basically, you're buying chocolates even if you're sad and desperate for a lover or if you have one. It's universal. It's Wait, a universal treat. That is legitimately fascinating that the cliche of drowning your sorrows in chocolate or eating your grief, that was actually like medicalized yeah. back in the day. Uh, have a box of chocolates. That's You'll amazing. Be fine. Let me write you a prescription for yeah. some Ghirardelli local chocolate. And some cocoa. Cola, which probably has opium in it because it's the 19th oh, century. Boy. Oh, yeah. And then 1913, Hallmark finally gets around to commercializing the situation. So they didn't invent it, and it has a long history, a troubling history. <laughs> so think about that when you give someone chocolates or stay home and watch a marathon of anti love movies or whatever you want to do for that day. Now I'm thinking about all those women who were promised to, to folks. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that bonfire. <laughs> That's women around the bonfire. So this year, why don't we have a bonfire? Yeah. Or we can go to South Korea where they celebrate a different like romantic holiday every 14th of every month. Oh. Such things as Candle Day, Valentine's Day, White Day, Black Day, Rose Day, Kiss Day. Just On gonna Black s- Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell me a little yeah, bit more just about Black Day. Day. Back to Hello. White and Black Day. <laughs> Black Day is celebrated on April 14th and it's aimed specifically at single people. And they get together and they eat a noodle that is cooked in black bean sauce. And they talk about being single and wear all black, black nail polish. And it's more of a support group. It's not a goth thing. It's just the color that they wear. I feel like I need this calendar in my life. Sounds quite lovely. Yeah, I want to celebrate. Yeah, I want to celebrate. If you didn't know, now you know. Okay. Still want the bonfire, though. (laughs) (laughs) The bonfire will quite literally be lit. It would be fantastic. It was lit. My Valentine's Day party was lit. <laughs> they originated that. Wow. It did. We figured it out. My whole squad lit. 
So, Jamidra, you were talking about a Match.com study you found, oh. and you have some, some educating to do here. Yes, 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 yes. Valentine's Day is not just for people who are in relationships. It is for people who are single. So, for all the single folks out there, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, information that Match.com has uh, discovered in their recently released sixth annual study on singles in America. So, how to increase your odds. Number one. Uh, if you talk about political issues on a first date, you're more likely to get a second date. Huh. Ooh. And the burn. they found that people who are passionate about political um, issues, regardless of their affiliation, have better sex. I mean, how are they quantifying? Imagine that survey. Did you talk about politics on your first date? Yes. Rate the sex on a scale of one. <laughs> I mean, I am as skeptical as it is possible to be. <laughs> they also found that sushi and cocktails at an upscale restaurant almost guarantee a second date. Do the sushis. Do the sushis. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm going to use that every single time I have sushi now. I'm going out for the sushi. Do the sushis. Do the sushis. Sushis. Does the sushi have to complement the cocktails or can it be Ooh. one or the other? Because I feel like with cocktails, like, yeah, there's going to be a second date because you're not going to remember the first one. Well, that's a good question. So they talked about, like, sushi will increase the second date, but also alcohol. So it can be separate. They found that people who don't mm. drink, if you don't drink on a second date, and beer and wine don't count. They're talking about a cocktail. That increases your chances of going on a second date. Hmm. Okay. And 59% of men and women don't expect to feel chemistry on the first date. Because it's so awkward. Yeah. So, no, that's ugh. so hard. Yeah, they, they expect to like gr- to grow. Grow into it. Yeah. So that's why it's really important that you need to just eat your sushis, <laughs> have a cocktail. And grow into it. I mean, and guys, I just bought some uh, trousers from Uniqlo. They didn't fit at first. But now they do. Hello. I've grown What a into. love story. Isn't it wonderful? Hello. So you can do the same with a, a treasured partner. Yes. And I know that, like I was told when I was growing up, that there are certain things you don't discuss on a first date or in polite company, quote unquote, um, and politics is one of them. So huh. Match has found that those attitudes are changing and that people who talk positively and have positive conversations about politics on the first date are seen in a better light than people who don't. And people who are not registered to vote are seen as not sexy. 25% of singles say not being registered to vote is an instant deal breaker. I, so would, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. No, so you're right. vote this election or you're going to be a virgin forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> so the only thing that they cautioned against talking about for a first date is exes. Agree. Exes. You want to stay away from your exes. Okay. You want to stay away from talking about, you know, your breakup. Well, how I think about that is if in the first hour of meeting someone, you can't help but bring up your ex-partner or whatever, you're not over them. Yep. And you yeah. should be single for a little while longer. For a little while longer. But but you also may only want to have one martini <laughs> so that you don't <laughs> So it doesn't come to- all out like, <laughs> so it was February 14th, 2007. He said he would give me flowers, but he didn't. He got me sushis yes. instead. If he got me the sushis, we would still be together. Maybe you just, if you're, if it's a Valentine's Day date, maybe you just get a heart box of sushi. <laughs> Forget the chocolates. I'd love that. That I would really not keep would. for very long, though. So you have to be. <laughs> you got to eat it quick. Yeah. Eat it quick. Don't deliver it to their work and just leave it on their Expiry desk. date on love. Yes. Exactly. So wait, with you guys, what are your Valentine's Day traditions? Ooh. Mm. I'm kind of annoyed by it because there's so much packed onto it. Like, yeah. what are we doing? And so I would rather just like always go on cute trips and do mm-hmm. cute stuff. I personally think Valentine's Day is for like new couples, like brand new or dating. Like when you're married or when you've been in a relationship for a while, you're like, I see you every day. I love you every day. We do stuff every day. We don't need one day to do it. Plus, like you said, all the rookies are out there taking up all the space exactly. and the reservations. <laughs> <laughs> They need it more than we do, so whatever. <laughs> well, 
I would strongly recommend that the rest of the country follows what me and my husband have done for the last 10 years, All right. which is Lay it on us. Chinese takeout and a horror movie. Ooh. Every February 14th, and it's so, so good. Don't go too gory with your horror movie. We once watched <laughs> the Evil Dead trilogy on Valentine's Day. So there's a line there. Yeah, and you know when you're eating like the ribs in the, in the red sauce oh, at the gosh. same time? Nope. So happy Valentine's Day, listeners. Or not, if you don't like it, after all the things we've just said. <laughs> So going from love and romance to things that people are not loving, have you guys seen who is the eminent celebrated photographer behind Burberry's latest campaign? Mm, Here we go. I'll give you a clue. His career is storied. Mm. He is 16 years old. And he has a man bun, according to The Guardian. It is celebrity offspring Brooklyn Beckham. I am obsessed by this story. So basically the the short version is that Burberry, the fashion house, hired not a professional photographer to shoot their latest campaign, but the child of David and Victoria Beckham, Mm -hmm. who is called Brooklyn, who is one of their, I believe, four children. So essentially, they've got this 16-year-old to shoot, quote-unquote, a campaign. And professional photographers are really not happy about this. Mm. There's, um, the Guardian has a fantastic article that interviews the fashion photographer Chris Floyd, who says that Burberry's decision to employ the inexperienced Beckham child was a devaluation of photography Oof. that showed a lack of respect for hardworking, experienced professionals. And he actually went on to say that uh, Brooklyn Beckham doing this for Burberry goes against everything his parents represent, which is an interesting argument. The photographer was actually saying that David and Victoria Beckham represent sheer willpower and graft, especially her. She's climbed that mountain all by herself, (laughs) which is a nice way of saying Victoria Beckham doesn't have any talent. Wow. The shade is so strong. What a backhand compliment. I will underline that, obviously, as a Spice Girl super fan. I've seen the early videos of them auditioning, Mm -hmm. and all the other girls have great voices, and Victoria was more about, like, a vibe. Yeah, she's just all style. Mm. I mean, she's like... And she sang something from, like, Chicago or something, and it was... She tried, and she she made lemon and now she's super famous. I need you Good to for say, her. I need you to say she tried again. <laughs> she tried. <laughs> she really did. Listen, we could dedicate a whole podcast, a future episode, to why Posh Spice is not actually very posh at all. But that's for later. Ooh. Ooh. Insider it's, English tea. Yeah, because I don't know that. She just fierce to me but it's just pretty funny um anyway the old school photographers are really unhappy with this and it got me thinking more and more about how every time i look at vogue's instagram it's always a celebrity offspring so what does this mean well there's like for us mere mortals for me there's two things going on here number one is that we talk so much about how like the rise of the internet has made everything like a meritocracy you just have to work really hard and get your work out there and it'll get spotted and you'll do fantastically Mm -hmm. um and it's not about whose kid you are anymore and that's just such a lie all the old systems of you know who you know, who you were born to, I think they're all very much alive and kicking. But that's an old story, right? So what's more interesting for me is how 
these new modes of becoming famous and getting your work out there and actually creating your work are totally railroading over the old forms of expression. Photographers hate Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like old school photographers who use film. They, I mean, they loathe digital photography because right. this, you know, it was all about having access to a dark room and being able to develop your film mm -hmm. and taking 5,000 shots and knowing that only one might come out. Right. And suddenly, it's a process. Yeah. And here comes this tiny piece of equipment that gets so affordable that pretty much anyone has one. And you can snap something and put it online. And that can be seen by so many more people than would ever have seen your one perfect yeah. shot from you're real. But I think The Guardian makes a really good point about the fact that the purpose of an ad campaign is to get publicity for the product. And he hasn't even snapped one shot for the product yet. And already people are talking about it, not because they think his photos are fantastic, but just because he's the one taking the photos. Exactly. So it's going to expose Burberry to a whole new audience that probably wouldn't give up. If it was, you know, I, yep. I can't remember the name of the photographer you just quoted earlier, but if he was taking it, those kids, the target audience that Burberry is going after, have no idea who that guy is, most of them, unless they're really into fashion. But they know who Brooklyn is. Yeah. And again, that's an old story, the idea of brands and organizations hiring people to right. be their spokespeople who don't necessarily have any training or any talent. They just look really good or they're really famous. That's been going on for decades like and decades. Kendall, like you were talking about. Because Kendall, yeah. I don't know if you saw the episode of the Kardashians when... Kim first took her to New York to model. Oh, I've seen every episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, watching that, if I was a teenage girl and I'm watching her and I've wanted to model all my life, I would have been, I'd be pissed right now. Yeah. yeah. I think what's underlining this whole thing is there's panic at being replaced and becoming obsolete. Like, yeah. we all feel that in varying degrees in our lives. And it's just happening at a more rapid rate yeah. where a 16 year old can come out of nowhere and they hand him a camera, they'll do all the lighting for him. And It'll look great because everyone's helping him and it isn't fair. But to pretend like we lived in a world previously where things were an ideal meritocracy and everything was fair, like, it let's not kid ourselves. That That's never been the case. All technology has always been pushed out and replaced by new technology. Yeah. Like the typewriter was really big at one point. Mm -hmm. And lots of people, you know, typewriter salesmen are very sad about the fact that we now have computers. Right. And computer salesmen are becoming increasingly sad about the fact that we all spend half our lives on our mobile phones. This will always happen. The churn will always the take place. And there will always be someone making a stink about it. I just feel like there's a lot being projected on like the platform that celebrity kids get like if you think of how people speak about Sofia Coppola who has proven herself to be a good director mm -hmm. but it always comes back down to oh she has a famous dad and she wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for that and it's like yes he gave her a platform but she did something with it and we can't hold these people back just because they happen to be born to famous yeah. people. I was gonna say that I think that even if he went through the route of like paying his dues and studying under and like doing apprenticeships I think there would still be people who would say that he got there writing in on the Beckham name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a movement. It's a feeling, right? And it's got a mm -hmm. lot to do with Instagram as well. I really wanted to read you guys a quote from The New Yorker about Instagram, which is <laughs> so scathing. It talks about how it emphasizes photography as an elegiac or twilight art, one that rushes and fakes the emotion of old photographs by cutting out the weight for history entirely and giving something just a few seconds old the texture of time. Whoa. A, that's perfect. B, I found it in Hazlitt's incredible profile of Winona Ryder by Soraya Roberts, which everyone should go and Google right now and read because there are so many gems in it, including <laughs> something about how 
the actress Winona Ryder couldn't compete with Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie. Guess why not? Why? Whose daughters famous are they? Famous parents. They have famous parents. Full circle, baby. They were set up from fame from the moment they were out of the operating room, essentially. I would just love to close this out by offering a, a cautionary tale that it's very easy for us whippersnappers to sit here and talk about how you know, sad it is that the old guard are railing against the new up-and-comers. But one day, actually very, very soon, we will be that old guard. I think that's going to catch us really fast. And we will start complaining about the younger people coming up who haven't paid their dues and mm-hmm. haven't earned their right to be famous. Well, that I'm watering my lawn and I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> what an ominous visual. I love that. Well, since we're talking about love, let's talk about my probably my first and true love. Still with it, even though I'm with my husband, it's always there. Procrastination. Mm-hmm. I feel like you procrastinated on that sentence. I just I had to like draw the point. So I know I'm not the only one. I think that many people procrastinate. Many people have these ideas of things they want to do that they never quite get around to. Mm. That's why when I stumbled upon Jessica Abel's article about idea debt, I was idea all over it. Debt, as in idea you debt. owe. Yes, as in like yeah. something that maybe Capital One is calling for. <laughs> idea debt. <laughs> so uh, Jessica Abel is a cartoonist, a writer, and an educator, and so she wrote a post recently that I was all over that talked about idea debt, which is basically essentially being lost in your ideas or imagining your ideas. So thinking about, I'm going to write this great book, and it's going to be fantastic. And it's going to be a bestseller and people are going to love it. And, oh, these are going to be the characters. But you haven't written one word. Mm-hmm. Right? Been there. I think yeah, many of us have been there. To her. <laughs> so, so idea that is a term that she picked up from a man named Kazu Kabushi. He is a cartoonist and a graphic novelist. He's most famous for the Amulet series, which I know only because it's all the rage with the elementary and junior high school students. And I just bought my niece uh, the series for Christmas. You're so tapped into that generation. Finger on the pulse. Right? (laughs) So essentially, idea debt is, let me give you the breakdown, when you spend too much time picturing what a project is going to look like, too much time thinking about how awesome it's going to be and how it's going to impact the world, but you don't do anything about it. So to illustrate this point, he talked a little bit about going snowboarding and watching snowboarders on the ledge procrastinating and thinking about how great their jump was going to be, how great their landing was going to be. And the longer you think about it, the longer you've built it up in your head, essentially you've already failed because you can't be as great as you have imagined yourself to be. You were standing up there thinking about it being cold. Right. So you're cold. Now you're not going to be able to pull off what you wanted to do because you procrastinated for too long. But You built it up so big in your head that, you know. So you can't meet your own expectations. You can't meet your own expectations. So his advice was to either do it in the moment or don't do it at all. Boom. Right? Tough love. So don't talk about it, be about it. That's what they would say where I'm from. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then also um, Abel talked about students in our class and how many of them wanted to be writers from the age of 12. So they thought about these epic novels they're going to write. And then they get to school. They're not prepared yet. Um, They learn as they go. And they think they're going to be mega famous. And the more time that goes on, 
the more sort of like nervous they get about it and they get afraid that they can't live up to their own expectations and then they never do it. Just like me auditioning for the real world. I was like, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Never did it. Now I'm ancient. I didn't know you wanted to audition for the Both real world. Both of us did, actually. I didn't, know you had a, I didn't know you had a real world audition story. Uh, there's no story. That's what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> this is he is proving your point in real time, and now he's too old to go on the real world. And that's why I'm not too famous for this podcast. <laughs> I was not on the real world. Wait, wait, wait. So as someone who procrastinated from, I believe, the age of 12 mm-hmm. about writing the novel that was going to change the world, yes. what items have you guys never released to the world Ooh. because you procrastinated simply too much? Emmanuel, I think you've already revealed <laughs> Well, that one, I also had an EP because I was going to be the male Grimes. I think I've said that on the show before. And I had three songs and it was going to be an EP called Hey Boy. And they're all, each song is about a different boy that I had dated. Oh my god! And then I stopped doing it. But I was like, okay, I'm going to start with the EP. Then I'm going to get signed. Of course it was an EP. Of course. (laughs) There was like a marketing strategy, but I didn't have like actual good music. And that's why I'm also not too famous for this podcast and not a famous musician. <laughs> and now Mary Louise Parker, the actress, has taken your idea and written her collection of short stories, which are all directed to different boys. Can I tell you something about oh, this idea? Please do. I was reading, don't hate me or judge me, a book by Elizabeth Gilbert uh-huh. of Eat, Pray, Love fame. Judged. <laughs> it's called Big Magic. And her whole point... Look at his eyes. Carly is like, <laughs> I didn't think this was a safe space, and I was right. And... She says in this book that when you don't use an idea, mm-hmm. it mysteriously like whips away like a ghost from you and goes to another vessel that can release it into the world. <gasps> and she had this crazy story Ooh. of like this whole idea that she had with all these specifics. Like it's about a road in South America and it's this happens and this character does this. And she met this woman who wrote that same book. Oh have you ever, has that ever happened to you? I feel like this happened to me. Like you tell somebody you have an idea and then you see it and you're like, they stole my idea. Well, I think if you tell them about the idea. <laughs> no, not that person. I mean, like I'll be scrolling on Facebook and I'll be like, babe, look at this. And you know what that is? That is idea debt. Mm-hmm. That's idea debt because it. I didn't do it. Having judged you, I, I am, that idea is really quite persuasive that if you don't act on it, it'll just get sucked back into the mm-hmm. ether and popped back up in someone else's consciousness. They'll be like, Boop, I, oh, I just got a great idea that Emmanuel didn't use. Mm-hmm. Be careful out there. Mm-hmm. What Jessica Abel suggested for us, because we have a lot, you were going to be an author, right? Oh, yes. A very, very successful young one. Singer. <laughs> yeah. Actor and fashion designer over here. Boom. Double threat. Never happened. So anyway, Jessica Abel, she made a suggestion that many of the ideas that we have and that we're collecting debt for belong to our former selves. So they're not things that we still want to do. Like she talked about writing books that she has no interest in really writing, but she's holding on to it because it's something that she's like, I'm going to do it. Mm. So you can start there. We can start letting go of the things that we know realistically we're never going to do. Like I'm not going to Hollywood. So... This is what we're going to do. All of us, all of us procrastinators who have mounds and mounds and mounds of idea debt, we're going to make a list. We're going to look at all of the things that we still think about that take up mental space for us. And the ones that we no longer want anything to do with, we're going to cross them off the lists. And the ones that we think that we can actually make happen, we're going to make some actionable steps towards those goals. This is so zeitgeisty because do you guys know the Marie Kondo 
school of decluttering. You know, like her philo- oh, this woman's yes. philosophy of no. decluttering. It's that's the same crap. It's the same like let go of the stuff that you can't take with you and uh, thank it as it goes away and say goodbye mm-hmm. and take the stuff that is useful. You know, fold that in a certain way and then put it into your closet <laughs> and kiss all the other stuff goodbye. Yes, yeah. touch it if it doesn't bring you joy. Chuck it. That goes for lovers too. So think about that for this yeah. Valentine's Day. Boom. Touch it. Chuck it. <laughs> I feel like that needs to be a song. Touch it, chuck it. I think touch it, chuck it is the new, like, hit it and quit it. <laughs> touch I, it and chuck it. Touch it, chuck it. Touch it. So today's guest, I'm so happy about, full disclosure, she's my bestie. Yeah. <laughs> Laura Shadler, who, if you don't already know, is a McDowell Fellow. Is a badass fiction writer published in countless lit mags. Just too many to count. Count them. You can't. <laughs> I can't. You really can't. can't. She's also a yoga teacher because it's not enough to be a badass fiction writer. She also wants to be a noise rock musician someday in her life. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and she has a lot of opinions about The Bachelor. Oh, here we go. So, so welcome, Laura, oh, to the studio. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We too. <laughs> we too. We three we too. It me. It me. Oh my gosh. I'm giddy. Just like a contestant on The Bachelor. It's true. Because if she's not giddy, he's Hysterical. not interested. Giddy. You don't get a rose unless you're giddy. Yeah. Giddy and flush. <laughs> oh God. So before we get into all The Bachelor goodness, I wanted to ask you about pop culture more generally. Like I said, you're a yoga teacher. You have a very zen way of thinking about life and particularly in how you refuse to feel guilty about liking what some people deem low art in pop culture. And I just wanted you to talk a little about how you stopped feeling guilty about that and just own what you like and take the guilty out of guilty pleasure. Oh, my gosh. That's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, I feel like I never had any guilt about guilty pleasures from I have no memory of of ever feeling that guilt. So as like a 13-year-old listening to the Lemonheads, I was just like, yeah. And I think I just love culture of all kinds, you know, pop, not pop, high, low. It doesn't, I don't even feel the distinctions. So for me, it's all just really fun and to sort of define myself rigidly as someone who just likes blank seems very unimaginative and like you're just not participating in the world. There's just a a fun to it all, I think. And, And not to immediately start talking about The Bachelor, but I think that's what The Bachelor is for me. It's like, this is just a very interesting thing that we could analyze from every which way. And it doesn't have to be something that like offends me to the depths of my soul or something, (laughs) although it does sometimes. Okay. So in a nutshell, why should someone treat The Bachelor, which on the face of it looks like such a ludicrous premise for a reality TV show? Why should someone treat that show seriously? Well, I definitely don't think it needs to be treated seriously, but I think it can be fun to treat it seriously. For example, I was Googling Marxist critique of The Bachelor and things come up. (laughs) (laughs) Did you write them? (laughs) It was my article. (laughs) You're like, SEO win. (laughs) Um, So I think in some ways it can be a really fun way to examine larger aspects of culture that maybe we think we're beyond or maybe we think aren't worth discussing Mm. or it's too obvious or it's too Mm -hmm. straightforward but really it maybe it's not certainly issues of like courtship and gender that we maybe are like oh we've we've figured this stuff out you know the bachelor then 
reveals that maybe we haven't figured it out. It's it's like a blank slate almost, and then we can mm-hmm. project onto it whatever it is that we want to. And if it's just silly and fun, then it's silly and fun. If you hate it and you don't want to watch it, by all means, you really should not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it can really be a way to sort of pose some interesting questions and, and start to, I don't know, um, in some ways its flatness gives it depth because you're able to really just get in there and mm-hmm. critique and analyze and it can be fun. You talked about it posing interesting questions. What do you think is probably the most interesting question it sort of brought up for you? Um, I think there have been these moments throughout the last few seasons where the real, real life breaks through, despite, I think, everyone's best efforts. So obviously, there's a huge amount of manipulation going on production-wise and and I'm sure behind-the-scenes things mm. like Unreal has shown us that awesome show. But... Um, I think for me, it's those moments where on Andy's season, the contestant who died after the filming was finished or to a much less dramatic degree on Caitlin's season when she just had sex with someone and that's not supposed to be discussed. You know, so these moments where the the real life breaks through the force field. Yeah, like the vortex of The Bachelor, (laughs) I think are really exciting kind of surreal moments of like, oh, wait. You know, that this is so fake, and yet there's the little glimpse of the real. And I mm-hmm. think for me, definitely as a writer, I just find that riveting. And just as a human behavior and interpersonal dynamics, when you see the person who, oh my gosh, Emmanuel will appreciate this, the person who I know they really like this. each other, you know, and you're like, oh no, they really like each other. This is real. <laughs> and then they send themselves home like Brooks did on Desiree's season. He said, "It's this is too weird for me. This show is freakish, and I really like you, and I'm going home. Mm. Yeah, And it oh. was just so fascinating. Well, he kind of withdrew from the, the whole ritual element. Of yeah, it. he took himself out of it. And a few people have done that, but never someone so far along in the process. I think he was maybe one of two or three at that yeah, point. Yeah, they were on vacation, and then there's a scene where she's weeping on a dock after he tells her, <laughs> hey, I like you and want to date you, but I'm not going to propose to you tomorrow while cameras are filming. This isn't natural for me, and it doesn't feel right. And he leaves, and she's devastated. He's devastated. He's crying in, like, a bush or something, I remember. Ooh. It's like real life and right there. <laughs> this is the only season I ever watched because Laura said you have to watch this, and I'm still traumatized to this day. Really? And there's a photo of us somewhere on the internet crying, clutching wine glasses during that episode. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was really something because it's, it's like they're breaking script. You know they're given these mm. certain things that they have to say and they have to do, obviously. I mean, some of those critiques of it are, are very obvious, but... He's allowed to leave if he wants to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, he's not actually imprisoned, and and he did. And people do that. And there's something very kind of awesome about that moment. But mm-hmm. do you think it's like a Truman Show moment where they open the door and it's it's a film set yes. on the outside? Yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, definitely. Yes. yes. <laughs> short answer. Yes. In short, totally. So a lot of the critique around this reality show and most reality shows is that it pits women against women. And specifically that came up with the, I think it was the last bachelorette where that's supposed to be the woman's space to like own her agency. And she gets to pick this time instead of vying for this dude's attention with how many other women, like a lot, tons, Mm, 20 or something. And instead of doing it the usual way, which is they pick one woman and then she gets to have her moment they pick two, and they're like, now you guys fight each other over who gets to pick out of these guys. Yeah. 
And that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an article about that, too. <laughs> yes, you did. So do you think it was like a ploy for them to get us riled up and talking about it and I be like, so. oh, I need to see how bad this is yeah. and how sexist it is. And then you watch and the one girl goes home, I guess. I didn't like, know. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, you know, it's so, so much of it is done, I think, with a real sense of humor, actually. You know, there have been arguments. One of the Marxist critiques I looked up or some other type of critique, <laughs> feminist critique, maybe. Um, was that there is the distinct possibility this show is parodying the people who would watch it mm. with any amount of seriousness or sincerity. And some of that seems true. I mean, certainly the rose, the close-up on the rose, the pullback from the rose. I mean, they're not doing that to be dramatic. They're doing that with a certain tongue-in-cheek attitude, I think. And so something like the girls being pitted against one another, there's just like people in a boardroom somewhere laughing their heads off thinking like ha ha you know, oh, to be on the fl- a fly on the wall in the production meetings <laughs> oh i would love it but would you though if someone said to you laura you can go and have an on-set tour yes <laughs> <laughs> unequivocally yeah absolutely because i do think the the behind the scenes stuff and the intention of everybody involved i think is fascinating too that's the psychology of it all from the the man who created it to the women who come on to The Bachelor to the after The Bachelor weird shows that I watched like four of last oh. night and, and like couldn't sleep afterwards because I wasn't <laughs> sure what had just happened. I want to know what they all are secretly thinking mm. like, real bad. So why do you think the majority of people who sign up to be on the show actually go? I mean, I have a couple theories. I feel like you get thrown into this situation, which maybe you're going because you want to be famous or maybe you're going because you really think you're going to fall in love. And then you get there and you're separated away from your regular life. You don't even have a cell phone, no TV, nothing. You really do become like, I think it's like Stockholm syndrome or something. You know, you're mm. you're like, a, you've been kidnapped and, and you you start to relate to your kidnappers and, and you get confused. I mean, I think some of the hysteria that you see happening in the meltdowns and um, just the other night, one of the girls said, can I just not be in front of the camera for a second? And it actually seemed mm-hmm. genuine. It seemed like she wanted the cameras to get out of her grill for a minute. Yeah. And so I... I think people maybe go with one idea and then it doesn't pan out the way they think. Or, I mean, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons from sincere to very calculated that people, you know, go on there. (laughs) So something that came to mind when you said Stockholm Syndrome is your piece about how The Bachelor is like a gothic novel. Yes. Mm. Please educate us. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Again, you know, I've just tried to come at it from all these different angles like what is the deal and why can I not stop thinking about it and why is there no kind of satisfactory why can't I just write it off and I really do think of it as like it's going to be this artifact that people study in a hundred years and look back and think what the (laughs) hell are these people doing you know and they're going to be representative of us oh my gosh (laughs) and I think so I'm like okay Maybe it really is our sort of contemporary gothic tale. And it has a lot of the components of a gothic story. It has the imprisonment, you know, locked away in a dungeon mm-hmm. aspect. Mm-hmm. 
little bit of danger, a little bit of supernatural elements. You know, how are these things happening? What's really going on? It's got spells for sure. Spells (laughs) are being cast. (laughs) What, like women kind of like casting glamour over someone? Yeah, I think all directions spells are being cast, like from the producers into the narrative of the show and then from The Bachelor out to the women and the women back to him. Like everybody seems like they're walking around with a little bit of a twinkle going on. Something, a little altered (laughs) sense of themselves. (laughs) It's funny because you say gothic novel, but I have this like personal pet theory that instead of reality TV kind of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we just used to have public executions. Oh, yes. Like that's what filled this same hole for us. Oh, totally. I totally agree. (laughs) <laughs> the idea yeah. that you you gather in the town square and you say who's going to be hanged today mm-hmm. or who's going to be on trial and it just happens to be that on our screens now you don't have to go into the public village square you can sit on your own couch I definitely Absolutely. think there's an element of hate watching that goes into shows like this like people watch specifically so they can pick apart the yes. contestants yeah I think that's happening for sure I think that's the other thing that's so fascinating is like why are people watching because to say that people are watching ironically that's not enough of an explanation to say that they're watching really sincerely isn't enough of an explanation <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Although, you know, last night when I was watching the Bachelor Live things, like there's girls calling in from sororities and they seem pretty, like, they're pretty into it. Like, they might might want to marry Ben. But, Future um, generations. Yeah. <laughs> so that's scary, too. But then I do think the sort of execution in the town square aspect of it is a big part, too. It's like we can't look away, but we also, like, need to see other people making these mistakes or embarrassing themselves in some way. Mm. And that aspect of it is getting into some more like murky mm. places as, <laughs> as the audience, which I feel like then that's kind of on us too. So it's kind of cathartic and that's not a good thing. Yeah, I <laughs> probably need to reflect on that aspect. <laughs> that's of an interesting point sure. though. So The Bachelor in summary is the reality show we deserve. Basically. I mean, I think on some level that might be a really good little sort of um, caption to explain <laughs> the show because, you know, there's some aspect of it that is reflecting either something about us or something we want to see. Right. On some level, that just has to be true. I mean, it's been around for 20 seasons. Whoa. I know. <laughs> and that part of it is just, you know, riveting enough in and of itself to just kind of wonder what is going on here. Well, I can't wait for your next pop think piece about The Bachelor. <laughs> and they are think pieces. Oh, and it will be coming. Don't you worry. I'm like, yes, what next? Mm, what next? Nice. So we round out every episode with a song. One of us usually yes. chooses it, but when we have a guest, we let the guest choose it. So it's your turn. What's oh the gosh. song that we should be listening to this week? So I just had to choose something that was thematically in keeping with our discussion. Yes. <laughs> and we didn't even get into this, but there's a few Bachelor spinoffs. And there's Bachelor Pad, which is no longer around. And then there's Bachelor in Paradise, oh. which I oh. highly recommend watching. A handful of the rejected Bachelor contestants all go to a tropical location. And in order to stay on the show each week, you have to hook up with someone. Is this a joke? Oh, no, they are so serious. It makes The Bachelor look like this classy, (laughs) like, really classy affair. It's just a complete and utter train wreck. So Um, instead of roses, they have, like, here, collect your baby's breath. It's, like, a little low budget. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's really something. And it comes on just in the summer. 
it's a whole other thing. I can come back next week and talk to you guys. It <laughs> sounds so dark. It's really dark. And it, and you basically, if you're not, so each each week there's an uneven number of men yeah. and women. And so if you don't get chosen and, you know, oh, couple off. An you awful get, musical chair. I was going to say, it's like But with your genitals involved. <laughs> it is. Genital <laughs> musical chair. <laughs> you really are able to, like, summarize these very <laughs> succinctly. I'm like, so what you're saying is, <laughs> their genitals go on an island. Yeah, pretty much. Sandy. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, back to the song. Visual, back to the song. But, oh, yes. So, um... What happened last season was that there was a couple throughout the whole time. They hooked up immediately. It was like the heartwarming tale of Bachelor in Paradise. Right at the end, Kirk broke up with Carly right in the last moment. And she was very upset. And she released a single <gasps> called Ooh. Blindsided. Oh. And I think that that should be the song oh, that we hear. It is perfect. <laughs> oh, my God. Without further ado, let's listen to Blindsided. Yes. sad weird song yeah, yeah but thank you <laughs> thank you for bringing that to us laura my pleasure and for educating us on all things bachelor oh my gosh we absolutely. might need you to come back in if crazy things happen in bachelor paradise or whatever and you know it will yeah you can be our senior bachelor correspondent i would love that so much that would just be we the culmination can... of all of my dreams and if you go away on a trip it's not a problem because we can patch you in down the line <laughs> I love this. I love this. Yes. It's going to be so legit. Yes. She said yes, guys. She said yes. I do accept. I do. Should we give her a rose? Who has a rose? Oh, here you go. Listeners, you can't see, but we're handing her a rose. It's true. (laughs) No thorns. We cut them out because we love you. Catch us next Thursday. Until then, find us on social media at Kikuri Pop. Bye. Bye now. Bye.